Our guest today is Travis Laudermilk, principal UX researcher at Microsoft and author of the Customer-Driven Playbook and User-Centered Design. Welcome to the Happy Market Research Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Support for the Happy Market Research Podcast and the following message comes from Michigan State's Marketing Research Program and HubUX. I've done hundreds of interviews with today's top minds in market research. Many of them trace their roots to Michigan State's Marketing Research Program. Are you looking for a higher paying job to expand your professional network and to achieve your full potential in the world of market research? Today, the program has tracks for both full-time students and working professionals. They also provide career support, assisting students to win today's most sought after jobs. In fact, over 80% of Michigan State's marketing research students have accepted job offers six months prior to graduating. If you are looking to achieve your full potential, check out MSMU's program at broad.msu.edu slash marketing. HubUX is a research operations platform for private panel management, qualitative automation, including video audition questions, and surveys. For a limited time, user seats are free. If you'd like to learn more or create your own account, visit hubux.com. This is being done in conjunction with Qual360 North America. The title of that is actually a live event, in, an in-person event, excuse me, in, in Washington, D.C., Empowering Insights Through Emotions. I can't wait to be in person again. Your topic is Moment Makers, how to win over your product teams. I love that. Give us a sneak peek. Yeah, so uh, this is a, a talk that I've given in a couple of venues, and I'm really excited. Fingers crossed that we're able to get together in person uh, in DC, and I, I can uh, look at folks' eyeballs uh, <laughs> and see their faces as I uh, reveal this content to them. But a sneak peek of it. So basically, it's this notion that I kind of came across about a year ago. I came across a book by Chip and Dan Heath called The Power of Moments. And what they talk about is all the neuroscience and psychology behind experiences that leave a lasting and memorable impression on us. And, you know, in some cases, these moments could be small, a kind word from a colleague at just the right time, or they can be momentous, right? Uh, like a wedding or a birth of a child. And so what I started to appreciate is that, you know, ultimately our lives and our work is really kind of defined and shaped by moments. They happen all around us and, and they define the way we behave. They influence the decisions we make and they certainly uh, shape how we perceive the world. And so when you really kind of think about it and you start to appreciate how powerful all these moments can be, you realize that oftentimes, if we're smart, they don't happen by accident. And so as a UX researcher, what I've learned throughout my career is that really I'm kind of in the business of creating powerful moments for my product teams, uh, for our leadership team to help engineer those moments so that they walk away with, you know, memorable and sticky insights uh, based on what we're learning um, from our customers. And so I kind of came across this idea, kind of put it together with what we do as UX practitioners. And it's something I'm really excited about, something I'm really passionate about is really helping us understand that, that, you know, each of us has the power to be a moment maker in the work that we do. So user experience is really about creating these moments for the user, in which case they have some sort of an emotional outcome. Is that what I'm hearing? 
Well, yeah, certainly. I mean, if you look at it from the the customer lens or or the user uh, lens, you know, we're all incumbent if, if we're product makers, and it doesn't really matter if you're making digital products or physical products. Right. You know, you know, our goal is to delight the customer, right, and create a moment for them. And so, when you think of like customer experience and those sorts of things, uh, certainly moments are at play. Uh, what I kind of have done is is to kind of turn the lens more inwardly. You know, as folks like designers, UX researchers, market researchers, you know, we're often the conduit between what the customer desires and what the business desires, right? And so we find ourselves in these moments with our product teams or leadership teams where we have to kind of convey to them, you know, what's happening with our customers. And sometimes even in the case of, you know, depending on how large your organization is, what's happening with other product teams, right? And so it takes a great deal of empathy, not just for our customers, but also on the other side of the glass, if you of our UX labs is the team dynamics, right? And the power dynamics that are there and kind of acknowledging that, recognizing it and kind of realizing that, you know, to break through with our product teams or break through with our leadership teams, you really do have to engineer moments for them as well so that they get those insights, that they become kind of elevated above the fray, above all the noise of signals that are coming in. So really, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, our duty to create powerful moments for our customers, but I would argue that it's also our duty to create powerful uh, moments for our product teams and our leadership teams as well. Do you find that, and this is a little bit of a personal question, do you find that muscle that you've been developing over the last decade or two of being a moment creator, it bleeds out even into your personal relationships? Oh, yeah, certainly. I mean... I look at raising two boys. I have a, a 15-year-old and an 11-year-old, right? And, you know, their lives are shaped and defined by, by moments, right? And, you know, when you think of being a parent, it's about showing up in those moments in meaningful ways, right? And so, yeah, you know, absolutely. There's what you start to realize, and I can't uh, recommend this book enough, The Power of Moments by Chip and Dan Heath again. So when you look at it from the lens of our day-to-day interactions, certainly in the work context, even in our personal context, is you do really start to appreciate that there's all these little defining moments that happen happen and that you have an opportunity to elevate those moments, right? And so what Dan and Chip, he talk about is that essentially what is a moment, right? So we keep throwing this word around and say, okay, well, I get it. You know, it might be something small and innocuous, or it might be this momentous thing, but ultimately they break down moments as these four kind of critical things that are happening. A moment is elevated, right? For instance, it feels a little bit different than just, you know, getting coffee in the morning or that kind of thing. There's something about it that is substantial that makes you, gives you pause, right? And also a moment develops insight, right? It gives you information, perhaps, that you didn't have uh, before. In a work context, ideally, these moments create pride, right? They, they give you a sense of purpose or a sense of, yeah, we're on the right mission. You know, Microsoft, our, our mission is to empower every person and organization on the planet. And I know uh, the product teams that I work with that I've been blessed to work with at this company, you know, they really are driven by that. They really want to feel like the work that they're doing is driving that level of impact. And so there is a great sense of pride in that. And then finally, great moments, powerful moments create connection. Right. They connect, create connection with our customers and, you know, they break through. You know, if you're an engineer writing code on a computer screen, it's that moment of seeing the customer actually use the product that you've slaved over and have a delightful experience that creates that sense of connection that brings all of these things together. And so when we kind of start to think about it a little bit more strategically, it really does affect the work that we do. As a UX researcher, it affects the way I present my work, for instance, you know, rather than 
developing, you know, pages and pages of reports, you know, that may, you know, that I might send through an inbox and cross my fingers that folks on the other end will actually read it and devour the information. I realize that I have to elevate those moments, right, a little bit more. So I might have to, for instance, uh, include video clips of a customer struggling with the product so that folks uh, can actually see with their own eyes, hear with their own ears, the customer express it in their own words, right? That that elevates it beyond, you know, a written quote on a page, right? I have to work hard mediating between product teams, right? To make sure that there's connection there, that that I'm not caught in between engineering and design, for instance, or marketing and business and engineering and these sorts of things. And so the work that I try to do, I, I really do process it through that lens. Am I elevating the moment? Am I creating insight? Am I engendering pride in what we're doing? And am I connecting others? That's so interesting. And you're right, like product reviews are all about the moments service. Definitely. It's about the feelings that we create. It's interesting. I haven't actually thought of it like this, but you know, even at a, at a team level, it's about the manufacturing or the engineering, I should say, of the, for the opportunities for moments. In a lot of ways, it's a, it sounds like a skill that you've been cultivating over a period of time. And it, like, is there a way to institutionalize that inside of your team so that other people can like learn and, and eventually yeah. be able to do it? Yeah, so uh, I, I love that question um, because it's something that our team uh, thinks a lot about. I have the great fortune of working in the developer division here at Microsoft, and on a uh, and I think I'm a bit biased here, but I think one of the best UX research teams on the planet, led by Dr. Monty Hammontree. And uh, we spend a lot of time uh, thinking about how to scale these kinds of things. We take the insights that we gather from teams that are working well together and developing good products. And we learn oftentimes that there's these kind of human components that often aren't written about in business books that really make teams click, connect with one another, and ultimately create a great work. And so then we've kind of turned our researcher lens, not only obviously, you know, we're incredibly focused on customers and what they need, but it's almost impossible to not turn that lens on our own product teams and see what they need as well, right? And so that's what inspired us to write the customer driven playbook initially. And then our follow-up book, Monty and I wrote the customer driven culture, which dives into what I think what you're describing, which is, you know, what kind of culture do you need on the ground to truly be customer driven? I know that you know, customer empathy is the new black. Everybody's talking about it. Being more connected to customers is, uh, you know, certainly a very popular topic uh, at the moment. And what we were investigating is like, you know, what kind of culture do you need on the ground to truly be customer driven? And it turns out that, you know, you need a learning culture, for instance, you really do need a culture that is that celebrates learning and not knowing right and we talk a lot about that you know growth mindset and these sorts of things and, and depending on the organization that you're in or the team that you're on maybe that's a little bit lip service it's like a thing that we aspire to do but you know we operate with all these belonging cues that suggest that really still knowing and being right is ultimately the currency of the realm right and so you know we're in, intentional again in these moments so i'll give you an example like let's imagine we're having an all hands where everybody in the division is getting together right our leadership team is intentional about who we invite on stage Right. And of course, we're going to invite folks on stage that are doing great product work because it's important for all of our uh, colleagues to see, you know, the great uh, products that we're producing and some of the innovation that, that we're working on. But they're also intentional to bring on folks on stage to share other moments. So, for instance, we might have a junior level program manager come up on stage to share a story about how they did something innovative to 
better connect with customers and hear their stories, right? And so what we're trying to communicate, what we're doing is we're trying to send a very strong belonging cue to the rest of the organization that, yeah, shipping products is important. Like, let's be clear, like we need to ship on time and all these kinds of things. We are a business. But, you know, learning is also incredibly important too. And we can value that just as much, if not more, quite frankly, than, you know, shipping on time. Right. And so we often say, you know, an invalidated hypothesis is just as powerful and just as important as a validated one. Right. So you might have a product team that investigates a particular area of business for three months and they ultimately come back to the organization and say, you know what, there's no there there right? There's no place for us to play, to win and those sorts of things. And we need to get better as organizations to not throw up our hands and say, well, I guess you wasted three months of your professional career there. You know, you got nothing (laughs) out of it. And we need to really get better at embracing those moments as a strong belonging cue to the rest of the product teams to say, no, actually, you told us where not to play. And that's incredibly valuable and incredibly important. When you think about the next generation, Gen Z and even in Gen Alpha, right? Their level of exposure and opportunity for knowledge is so much and experience is so much greater than any previous generation, especially given the fact that we are probably moving to some sort of regular cadence of shelter in place. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, yeah. You know, and it, and as and as that, I mean, I'll give you a good example. My six year old last year is his first year in school, so grade one, right? And mm. it was all online. Yeah. And he didn't know any difference. So he thought it was great. Mm. Uh, you know, we would pack his lunch and he would fill his backpack up and he would walk over to his, and this is going to sound like an infomercial. I don't mean it like that. But <laughs> like he would open to up his Microsoft Surface, I think it is, right? Oh, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I like this infomercial. <laughs> and log into his his teams by yeah, himself. Yeah. And it was just like this complex password, multi-care, you know. Yeah. And he just navigated the whole thing really, really well. And he is effing six years old. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think what you're referring to is, you know, I, you know, it's so funny that you mentioned this because I've been hearing this term all this week and, and I was familiar with the term, but for some reason this week, it just keeps coming up uh, is the digital native, right? Yeah, this that's generation right. of digital natives. These are the young people who, you know, have came out of the birth canal with a phone in their hands. You know? Yep, <laughs> that's know, right. They know, they know <laughs> that's, how to use it. And as you exactly talk about, right. right. And as you talk about, I, in fact, both of my children, unfortunately, are home today because both of their schools are closed down as a result of the pandemic. And um, so they find themselves back to doing learning. My wife is a teacher, so I've got to watch her firsthand, uh, try to teach students remotely and all this sort of stuff. So this is certainly an area that's close to my heart. Um, But when you think about the next generation of work and kind of where this is all kind of leading us, right, is, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. So, you know, I came up in the world of, I got to straddle both worlds, right? I I lived in a world before technology consumed everything. And then I get to live in a world where technology is all around me. And it's easy to kind of pull out my lawn chair and gripe about how, you you know, we don't have enough interpersonal <laughs> communication anymore and how no one looks at each other anymore when they're talking and these sorts of things. I wouldn't go so far to say that. There's, you know, there's a lot that excites me about the capability uh, that we do have. And, and it's not because I work at a technology company and, you know, folks are using, you know, Teams or Zoom or what have you. You know, there's another lens to put on this that really is amazing that we were able to uh, stay connected, and some might argue the level of connection, and I understand that, but stay connected and still with each other, you know, despite uh, some of the challenges. But when you think about how folks, you know, these digital natives and what they're coming into the work context for, it's still, some of the research is showing that, you know, we're about 50-50, right? There's still many folks that still want to return back to the office and they desperately miss that human connection. And that spans across ages, so it's not a generational thing. Particularly young people who are starting their careers need much more face time. Um, You know, they certainly reported that. 
And so, you know, as we think about moments in that context, right, um, is that, you know, really creating powerful moments that connect us is even more important than ever. Right. And thinking more innovatively about how we do that. So like we had to completely translate our in-person workshop. We do quarterly workshops with our product teams and where we walk them through our whole customer driven uh, playbook uh, and our customer driven uh, way approach of, of doing work. It's a three and a half day workshop. And we did that all in person. And one of the big selling points is, boy, this is awesome. We all get together in a room and I get to spend time with folks that I don't often get a chance to spend time with. And we get the classic post-it notes that every UXer loves and cover the walls and all that sort of stuff. And it was really distressing when the pandemic, in fact, I was in the middle of a workshop when they sent out a note telling us all we needed to go home. And it was very uncertain about how we would recreate this kind of moment for, for our product teams going forward. And we were able to successfully transition it to online. And I think a big part of that is because what we realized realized that there were some key components in that in the moments that we were creating that really were independent of whether we did it in person um, or online. And those things, you know, being like, you know, working on work that matters, for instance, not coming in right. with, you know, hypothetical example uh, work for everyone to do. We're going to build a balsa bridge and, and work on a team where, you know, to, yeah. not to suggest that those exercises aren't important in this. Don't they have some value. Uh, they have value. But, you know, something that stood out to us was, boy, folks really love getting together, uh, working on work that's going to matter and that's going to drive impact. And so we really need to make sure that the activities we give them, you know, give them the ability to actually do quote unquote real work that, that the leadership will see. Um, leadership involvement was still, you know, obviously very important. And so we, our leaders would dial in on teams and they would present over teams and, you know, they would get on camera to show that their face was, you know, visible and that, um, that they were there and that they were connected and that they were, that they cared about the work that was being done. And these are new employees that had just joined the division. Again, getting back to that belonging cue, the leadership team makes time in their day because they realize that these are new employees and they want to see that their leadership cares about being customer driven. And so these new employees get a chance to spend time with our customers. Some of them, it's the first time they've ever talked to a customer. And then they get a chance at the end of the workshop to look the leadership team in the eye for the very first time. Um, for many of them, they've never had a chance to even have a meeting with senior level executives and tell them what they learned from the customer. And our leadership, Amanda Silver and, and Julia Lucen, they do a great job of showing up in those moments, even despite their busy schedules, because they know that they're powerful and they elevate and they create insight, pride and connection. And so that's the kind of work that it's required if you're a moment maker. Yeah, it's all around the intentionality of knowing you want to create the moment and then engineering and designing for that moment to actually take place. And what's what I found really interesting, almost categorically, is that people want to be led there. And so whether it's executive level management or someone who just is a brand new employee, they're all willing, if that path is carved for them, to make that journey. And so there's not a lot of risk as long as you put the effort into creating that path. Yeah. So, you know, to build off your point, you're talking about, you know, there's this notion of engineering moments. And certainly I talk a lot about that, but I think you're raising a good point, And that is, you know, something that we all can do today is simply just acknowledging that these moments exist and taking advantage of them. Right. And so an example of a moment that was quite profound that wasn't certainly engineered is I, I think back in 2018, some of your listeners maybe remember this, but the uh, Tam Lang cave in Thailand, we had those young boys, they were like ages 11 to 14. Uh, they were on the soccer team, the Wild Boars, and 
were stuck in that cave back in, in July. And I was traveling in Canada at the time. And I remember everybody at the hotel was just riveted. We were all watching the television as they were trying to reach these uh, these poor kids that were stuck in this cave. And it was like all anybody could talk about. I remember continually checking my phone, looking for updates. Did we get them? Did we get them? And you know, if you remember, Elon Musk was trying to send a submarine over there. I and mean, the whole world was captivated by this moment, right? And if you pause and you say, well, you know, young people and children especially are in distress all over the world all the time. What was it about, you know, this collection of young children uh, or teens in this case that just captivated us, right? And I would argue that there were some key elements to that. Number one, it was elevated, certainly. You know, it was a very distressing, you know, thought to think of these young boys stuck in a dark cave. But it also created an insight, I think, for all of us, as, certainly as parents, of just the empathy of the families who were just out of reach of their children and couldn't get to them. You know, something else started to happen where what was kind of really cool for, uh, at least from my perspective, is that the world kind of leaned into it. And we kind of created this connection with Thailand and, and folks from all over the world were sending resources, um, their best engineers. Um, we sent the U.S. Navy SEALs, and you know, because we kind of looked at it as like, hey, this is something we all can pitch in and try to a situation that we could try to resolve. And, and thankfully, we were able to do that, right? And so. When you kind of think about it, if you look at these moments with this lens, I'm confident that our listeners will find that in their day-to-day -day work, they're actually letting some of these moments pass them by uh, that could be elevated, right? That could engender insight or pride or connection. And so I would certainly encourage listeners to, to kind of think about that and think about perhaps moments that, that could have been you know, better captured. There's such an opportunity to leverage this for good. And then there's the flip side, right, which is leveraged for bad. and right. And, and you see that specifically in the political realm right now, yeah, yeah. Uh, where you have this like constant state of polarization, which is in a lot of ways driven by just manufactured. And I'm being careful to walk the line here because yeah, yeah. it's not a political show, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. right? But you can, you might be able to make arguments on either side. Yeah, I would say that to me is distinctly different about those kinds of moments. And I, I think, and, and depending on what side of the political spectrum you land on, I, I still feel like they feel like the same to us, regardless of what side of politics you're on. Um, what's different to me about those types of political moments is that they often divide for one. Um, so they don't create that sense of connection. They are elevated and they tend to be, elevation tends to be kind of the signature kind of ingredient, if you will. Right. Um, but not always do they necessarily create a level of insight that leads us to connection. And so I would agree with your sentiment that, you know, that's where we have to be careful with moment, uh, certainly, and, and treating them uh, with their due respect. But when you really bring the four elements together, elevation, insight and pride and connection, connection's the last one. Right. If, if our moments aren't bringing people together and they're not creating insight between groups, then I would argue they're falling more on that dark pattern that you're talking about. Oh, my gosh. Talk about like a whole nother podcast topic. That would be super <laughs> okay. We got to move through this. So talk to me about what do you see as the biggest challenge facing consumer insights today? Oh boy. Oh man. Uh, there's so many, uh, if I, one that I'm really intentful on at the moment is, you know, as we navigate the last couple of years, certainly, you know, we're, every industry is dealing with profound change and trying to grapple with it. Uh, something that I have been really interested in is, is the way we talk to one another in particularly in a work context and how do we share these insights in a meaningful way and how do we navigate difficult conversations and these sorts of things. And so something that I think that UX practitioners, market researchers, you know, designers and the like, where we're 
really naturally kind of set up to, for success here is, again, really helping our teams have productive conversations with each other, you know, that generate insight and connection, right? And so I think as we navigate being, you know, separated physically, that's a key moment for us as practitioners that study human behavior to help our organizations navigate that discomfort in a successful way. And so I certainly would encourage folks to think about, particularly if you're looking to, you know, uh, develop more credibility in your career and that sort of thing, or maybe you're feeling like your organization doesn't necessarily value the, the work you're doing, is perhaps look at it from an internal lens and say, you know, if I, you know, you always have to stay focused on the customer because that's, you know, where our business lies, but are there opportunities where you can help some of these difficulties that are all of our organizations are struggling with, with your skills in human, uh, human behavior, studying human behavior, empathy, interpersonal communication, and all these sorts of things. I think there's a tremendous, tremendous opportunity for us as practitioners who have spent our lives dedicated to understanding human behavior as it relates to computing in, in the UX uh, realm. But like, what can we do with that to help our organizations be more collaborative, connect better, create psychological safety so folks can generate their best ideas and do their best work? And ultimately, you know, help people find their purpose. Because I think it's really a critical component to what we do uh, as practitioners is helping people get up out of bed every day and know what they want to do, right? It's so critically important, particularly now where folks, you know, are struggling and it's hard. You know, we get up and we got a lot of stuff on our plate that we never imagined we'd ever would. And so I think it's hard for folks to kind of remember, you know, when they show up and they sit down and look at their inbox and go, why am I doing this? <laughs> What's the point of all this? And we have a unique position, I think, to help folks remember that by connecting with, you know, helping them connect with their customers, helping them see, you know, the challenges that are out there that we're best positioned to tackle. Um, and, you know, hopefully help motivate them that their work does matter and that we have a unique opportunity to, oh gosh, am I going to end it with this, but make the world a better place. <laughs> oh, I love it. Let's do that, right? Can I infringe on your time for five more minutes? Of course. Why not? Okay. Well, you might have. <laughs> why not? Meeting. I'm having fun. Let's, let's okay. go. Okay. <laughs> I'm having a great time too, but right. I, and I just feel like I will regret not asking you this question. So as a Gen Xer, you remember a world of, you know, Sesame Street and, yes. <laughs> right. And, and like really very, you know, no technology yeah. to a world where now we're immersed in technology. Yes. You know, the internet, when it launched really publicly in the nineties was yeah. thought of as kind of a place where people could post recipes or what, you know, very static uh, yeah. content at that point. Right. And, and now it's like, you know, it's crazy. It's unbelievable yeah. how it's impacted everything from my, the lights in our houses to uh, the cars we drive to uh, how we monitor our dogs. And so in that, it's been really impactful, but we're stepping into another stage, aren't we? The metaverse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the good old metaverse. The good old, the good young metaverse. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's more, more appropriate. Good young metaverse, right? Yeah. 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 How, how are you thinking about that in context of experience? Yeah. Or moments? Yeah, moments really. Um, you know, what's interesting about uh, the metaverse and VR and augmented reality and this sort of thing, you know, obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, I, I think, you know, I, I enter this space with a little bit of trepidation. You know, I think many of us in industry are looking at it, you know, maybe with a sideways glance of saying, I'm not sure this is the right direction we should all be going in. But I also want to be, you know, hopeful that we can create some really engaging experiences that delightful, but most importantly, that create that sense of connection I've been talking about. What's interesting about 
about you can get down into the logistics of it, right? And say, okay, you know, what kind of technology do we have to create that creates a safe space, you know, for folks to engage in a way that, you know, certainly makes them feel comfortable and at ease and safe, get into things like you know, haptic feedback and clipping in terms of like, you know, how close can one avatar get to another, you know, before it's, you know, not acceptable and, you know, and then, you know, monitoring uh, even the way we interact and communicate on these platforms, which has been a problem well before the metaverse. So I'm encouraged because I think, you know, there's some really exciting work. I'm a technologist, you know, uh, at heart. So of course I, I fall in love with all the capability that technology affords us. I think what's been interesting for me to kind of see happen from my perspective is that we were talking about digital natives earlier and we have a generation of folks and really quite frankly, you know, more and more people as they get online is that we have a society that has access to more information and more avenues of communication than we could have ever imagined our species having, right? And what's been so fascinating is that despite all that, it does feel, or uh, I observe that we still struggle with poor communication. <laughs> and, and perhaps it's even exacerbated, right? And so when you think about how we communicate, particularly when we have disagreement, you know, how we talk to one another, you know, still is fundamentally the same way, right? So you and I are having a conversation right now. We might be having a what happened conversation. This is actually from the book, Difficult Conversations, written by uh, Douglas Stone, Bruce Patton, and Sheila Heen. Uh, they've done some phenomenal work. This book's been out for a while. So if you're interested in this sort of thing, definitely take a look at it, Difficult Conversations. But what they talk about is there's three essential things that are happening in every conversation. There's the what happened conversation, there's the feelings conversation, and there's the identity conversation. So you and I are having a conversation right now. And predominantly, like most folks, we spend time talking about what happened. Is this happening? Happening, what happened before? Is this going to happen? These sorts of things. There's the feelings conversation, particularly in a business context, we never spend time. In fact, particularly in North America, we, we try to get feelings out of the equation as much as possible. But that's usually actually what drives us and the topics that we choose to talk, talk about, why we bring certain things up is because we're, again, defined by moments and we're, there's a feeling that compels us to talk about such a thing. Then there's the identity conversation, which is even deeper, which is what does this mean to me that we're talking about it, right? And so as we transfer over over to the metaverse where potentially you can have any identity that you want to try on, which is both exciting and exhilarating, but also, I don't know, I have a big question mark of like, you know, what does that mean for human interpersonal communication when I can take on a fictional av avatar? It could be profound and it could be great. It could be liberating. It also could be, as we referenced earlier, you know, used for a dark pattern of sorts and could be harmful, right? But I think it's still really, you know, going to come down to those three components. It's, it's really about, you know, exploring what happened, you know, and, and being able to look at truth, for instance. I, that's something that, you know, we could have a whole nother podcast on is like, you know, how do you find truth in, in an information saturated world? <laughs> um, it's about our feelings getting better as a society and more comfortable, particularly here in North America, talking about our feelings and being okay with expressing feelings. I, I'm really encouraged and really delighted to see uh, millennials and Gen Zers getting more comfortable and outspoken and vocal about their feelings. I think it's great. I think it's long overdue. And then thinking about identity and what identity we bring to the context and being open and receptive to others' identity and, and how they see themselves and, and how they want to be seen and ensuring that we're doing that in a healthy way. And so if we're able to achieve that in the metaverse and we focus on those kind of components and we create a space not of, you know, a way to escape reality, but to better to augment it and perhaps even um, get better at communication, uh, then you know, I think I'm all for it. I, I would definitely be encouraged for folks that are doing work in that capacity. 
Um, it's when we get into that kind of escapism and, and you know, trying to move the cheese, as it were. We're saying, hey, we, we don't communicate very well in meat space, so let's go into virtual space and maybe it will toss a digital Frisbee and we'll have a better conversation over there. I, I tend to be a little bit dubious. So that's my take for what it's worth, my two cents. But it's certainly a fascinating space and, and Microsoft and others are certainly invested in it. It's not a question of if it's happening. I think it's a question of when and how. But uh, it definitely for all of us as practitioners, it's something we should keep our eye on. And, and particularly if, if you are in the business of human behavior, I really implore you to be vocal and, and really make sure that we're doing right by what we know about human connection, human behavior, and, and human emotion, that we make sure that we're infusing those insights into those spaces as we develop them. My last question, what is your personal motto? Oh, <laughs> all right. This one's obnoxious. I, I, I have a fear that like either listeners have already stopped listening because they're like, gosh, this guy sounds like Mr. Rogers or, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, speaking of, uh, I was more of a Mr. Rogers guy instead of a, a Sesame, Street, uh, Sesame Street guy. Um, so my yeah. personal motto, uh, uh, this is if I brought in uh, either of my boys and I'd say, what's our family motto? It's, it's work hard and help others. You know, I feel like it really does boil down to that. We got to do our best work. Uh, it's, it's incumbent on us. That's why we're here. We got to push these hard rocks up pills. But if we're not doing it in a way that really helps the people around us, then, you know, it's really for not. And so what I always encourage them is like, hey, man, do the work. You got to do the work. Come on, let's go. We got to we got to dig deep. We got to do the work. But also, you know, let's pause and reflect and, and make sure that the work that we're doing, the rocks that we're pushing up these hills are actually making uh, the world a better place and helping other people. So uh, that's pretty short and sweet, but that's our family motto anyway. Our guest today has been Travis Laudermilk, principal UX researcher at Microsoft and author of the Customer Driven Playbook and User-Centered Design. He will be speaking at Qual360 North America. Again, the title of this particular one, in person in Washington, D.C., empowering insights through emotions. I hope you'll come to the event, shake his hand, and make a new friend. Have a great rest of your day. 